It's March 9th, 2022, and uh, welcome to the new reality edition of Bite March Cafe right here on Hawaii Public Radio, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. First off, we have Pat Sullivan from Oceanet, and he's, he's here to give us the latest update on the rapid COVID tests. And uh, then we'll be joined by Ikaika Hussey, and we'll learn about a technology to convert air to jet fuel and his startup called Feather Fuels. But now I want to welcome Pat Sullivan. He's the uh, president and CEO of Oceanet. And, of course, uh, we've had him on before, and I would like to welcome him to Bite Marsh Cafe and, and give him a chance to, uh, and well, congratulate him and, and let him share the, the great news that they just uh, got from the uh, FDA. Well, thank you, Bert, and aloha. Thanks for having me on. And, yeah, we were... Fortunate, we finally got through the FDA approval process and have now been awarded an EUA for a rapid COVID-19 test. And uh, boy, long haul to get there. <laughs> yeah, I know it's been <laughs> quite a while. Now, now, uh, Pat, this is uh, for something you call Assure 100, right? And and right. tell us a little bit about where this Assure 100 uh, gets used versus the one that you had earlier, which was the uh, the saliva test, which was Assure 19. Right. So Assure 19, which we actually had it working really, I thought, working pretty well with saliva, but then we discovered not everybody could spit. So then we pivoted. Not everybody could spit on command. Mm-hmm. That was a challenge. But with the Assure 100, we went with a shallow nasal swab, and um, we got very consistent answers with that. So that's the one that we have approved. From the FDA. Oh, that's and, great. Yeah, and where but, where where's the where's the place that you know where saliva you can pretty much do that anywhere with the Assure One Hundred. Where's the uh, most most frequent place where that test would be administered? Well, the Assure One Hundred is the way we kind of positioned it. The, this particular version is to work with. Uh, uh, hospitals, uh, healthcare providers, uh, could be businesses, schools, uh, institutions. And then what we'll be doing is we'll be doing tests on um, usability, and we need to do it in a foreign language, and then we, we get that data. That becomes the over-the-counter version. So the first version is more for uh, institutions, and then the one behind it will be maybe CBS and Longs. Oh, uh, I see. The technology won't really change. It's exactly the same test. It's just you've got to deal with uh, can anybody anywhere read the instructions who maybe has a ninth grade education and use it properly. Mm-hmm. And and in terms of uh, getting the FDA approval, uh, what you know obviously this opens up some really opens uh, the doors quite wide for you to uh, get it into the market now. Absolutely. And what we're doing is not only locally, but nationally and internationally. So we've been approached by several organizations to help us with uh, global distribution. And at the same time, uh, there's some big institutions uh, on the mainland where they're looking at, you know, they have uh, things going on in each state, and so they need it to deal with. But you have currently things are kind of slow because uh, they're, they're the BA1 version of Omicron, the subvariant, is sort of burned through the, the, the country for the most part. There's still pockets. Mm-hmm. 
that there's an expectation of a new subvariant called the BA2, which is actually way more contagious, and the mutations are in a different spot. So the worry is the, the, the natural antibodies you might have, they're saying a lot of that won't work against this new sub, subvariant. So I think what we're looking at is COVID is going to be around for a while, and we're looking at um, when we need to, masking, uh, vaccinating, and uh, testing. And with that, we're managing risk so that we can have a normal life. And I think that's going to be more the, the, the normal modality in how we do things. And, um, and the tools are there, and it's relatively easy to do that. That way we can all make choices and how we want to manage the risk. This new variant looks pretty serious, so, um, but it's still low in numbers. Mm-hmm. So I think there'll be a pause, and uh, people should take advantage of the pause, go out to eat, and, you know, see other people. There's nothing like being in, I've been in meetings with other humans. It's wonderful. <laughs> and so I would, I would encourage that for as much as you can. But at some point, they're expecting uh, to be fall. There's different theories about when that might happen. Um, you should uh, just be paying attention. It'll all be in the news as, as the data gets put out there. And you, you follow the numbers, and, and those numbers will give you a heads up. And when that happens, you know what to do. Mask, get a vaccine, and it'll pass, and, and, and just you can still operate. Well, that, you I think know, that's kind of the future we're looking at. Yeah, no, I, in fact, that's uh, kind of the question I was going to ask you, because I had not heard about this uh, new variant, and, and given the current uh, laxing of or maybe repealing of any kind of mask mandates, uh, people are feeling pretty comfortable about getting kind of back to a, a, a normal uh, sense of, of uh, livelihood. Uh, but what uh, what you're bringing up is something uh, pretty brand new in terms of uh, a potential new variant that might keep us, um, just keep us uh, alert and aware and uh, be, you know, be ready to respond appropriately. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to look at it from a, a different perspective. A virus is trying to survive, and it's through evolution and very fast evolution is trying to perfect itself so that it can be around a long time. Every time we, we do a vaccine or, um, you know, it kind of runs through everybody and it's no longer, an, you, can't, you can't find effective hosts, it transforms itself. And, there, and the only question is, will it be worse, you know, more dangerous, or will it kind of mellow out? Mm-hmm. And there's different theories. The new version of this analysis we were just going through this morning showed that it, it could be pretty nasty, and yet nobody knows yet. The data is very low, and the percentage occurrence in the community is quite low, but that's what people are going to be tracking. And that's why, you know, CDC and these other institutions, the Department of Health, are all trying to keep a handle on this so they can give everybody enough advance warning and we can all make good choices and keep moving and operating as a society and doing the things we love to do. Well, that's uh, that's great advice, and, and I'll, I'll take that and uh, enjoy uh, some normalcy at this point in time, but be uh, be very conscientious about how things might change in the, in the not-too-distant future. So, Pat, where can people, again, find out more about uh, your Assure 100? So if you go online, if you if you just put in a Sure 100, it'll come up. If you go to the Ocean website, and uh, it's either the front page or it's close, 
So you can go online and find it. So a sure 100, just type that in, and, and you should go to that, and you can learn more about it. Sounds good. Mahalo, Pat, for joining us and breaking news here. Thank you. Mahalo. Thank you so much, and aloha. And, of course, uh, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Ikaika Hussey, and we'll talk about feather fuels and the tech behind converting CO2 to jet fuel. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Welcome back to Bite Mark Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm happy to welcome Ikaika Hussey, who is here not as a city council candidate, but as an entrepreneur focusing on the decarbonization of long-haul aviation. Hey, Ikaika, welcome to Bite Mark's Cafe. Hey, Bert. Thanks so much uh, for having me. Yeah, and you know, Ikaika, I don't, I don't think I've had you on the show, and I'm glad to finally have an opportunity to, to have you uh, come on Bite Mark's Cafe and of course, uh, you know, I'd always love to have you come in the studio, but uh, we're we're kind of uh, doing the phone-ins now. But So, Ikaika, you know, you've been, you know, as I've always known you as a um, kind of a journalist and uh, looking at uh, sort of new ways of, of, you know, addressing things like uh, climate change and, and being very conscientious of the, of the environment. But now you're, you're you know, sort of, uh, putting your toe into the entrepreneur startup world. So what kind of got you inspired to do this? You know, for me, it was actually, it was actually about trying to solve the climate problem. Um, you know, I, I think it was in 1990. I was, you know, I'm 43 years old. In 1990, I was in sixth grade. And I remember reading a news story that my sixth grade teacher, you know, she had us read um, articles about environmentalism or social justice issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, my teacher was Sarah Armstrong. So, Ms. Armstrong, thank you very much. I want to thank you. <laughs> and, but, you know, I, the article that I read was about cap-and-trade policies, and this was in 1990. And mm-hmm. we all know that, you know, there actually hasn't been much um, progress in cap-and-trade, globally at least. Um, it's not enough progress. And my takeaway as a child was that everything's going to be okay. You know, the adults were going to solve the climate problem. And now I find, you know, now 30 years later, and my kids, my my middle child is exactly the same age I was when I um, when I read that article, and you know, in the intervening time, we really haven't dealt with climate. In fact, it's gotten much, much worse. And a couple of years ago, my wife um, went to a Bill McKibben talk. He was in town, and she when she came home, what she said really hit me. She said, "You know, Ikaika, uh, climate is different than every every other issue that we've ever worked on. You know, Hawaiian rights. You know." land issues, all this kind of stuff, because climate's the only issue with a deadline. Mm-hmm. Like, it has a firm deadline. And so that really it hit me hard, you know, and it forced me to reassess what was a priority for me personally. And I decided to put a bunch of things on the side. I mean, I was running a, a magazine at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I put that on the side, and I thought, okay, I want to focus on climate and, and think about how, you know, what, what can I do, but really – what can we in Hawaii do? What can our little island chain do in the middle of the Pacific? How can we, you know, put some uh, a dent into the climate problem? Now, and I did a bunch of research. I, I spent, like, I read Drawdown, you know, that, that book. Uh-huh. Um, it's a great book. The other good book you should everyone should read is Intellectual Anarchy by Pat Sullivan, um, who was just on the show. Yeah, no, but, I'll put that up. Yeah, I'll put that on our show notes. Exactly. But, you know, so what... what, what um, 
I realized that we're so dependent in aviation that that actually if we could use that dependency as sort of a fulcrum, as a leverage point to force some big changes. And so that's how we got into director capture and, and all this kind of stuff. So, so Ikaika, you mentioned a deadline. Of course, <clears throat> when you read the uh, sort of I- initial <clears throat> article back when you were a sixth grader, and, and I got I to gotta, uh, commend you for uh, reading those kinds of articles way back then because I, I can't even remember what I was reading in sixth grade. But uh, uh, It was homework, Bert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this deadline that you're referring to, what, what, what deadline are we talking about? So, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, so I'm gonna, I might mess this up. But basically, we have to reduce emissions by, I think, by 50% by 2030 okay. in order to halt the most um, disastrous impacts of climate change. And it's the thing where, like, if we don't make that major shift by 2030, then we, we make it much, much harder for all, all future generations. So it's like, you know, our kids, our grandkids, their grandkids – it, it's a. It's about us in the very short term, making some big, big shifts, big changes. You know, for for everyone who's coming. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. no, and and, and uh, I commend you for taking this uh, action that you you are about to embark on. And you know, the the long haul aviation. I mean, we're talking jets that fly across the Pacific. You know, from Hawaii to the the continent. Uh, why is that a, a problem? I mean, it's kind of it's it's kind of obvious, but I want you to I want you to say okay. why yeah, why it's a problem. Yeah. So there's some amazing work happening right now around battery powered planes, hydrogen powered planes, hybrid electric planes, kind of like Priuses that fly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right. some of that awesome work is being done here in Hawaii. There's a company called Ampere, which I think is part of the Elemental Accelerator um, crop. You know, they're doing awesome work, but what they're building are small planes, and they're building it for short distances. Um, and uh, and there's some really cool work, work that's happening, you know, in, like, the hydrogen space, but it takes a long time for, you know, for fleets of aircraft. Mm-hmm. You know, think of the hundreds or thousands of planes. I don't know how many there are. There's tons of planes. It takes a long time for them all to be replaced uh, en masse by new planes, right? Exactly. Especially when you take into account the long-term financing and lease arrangements, et cetera, for, for jets. And so what we're looking at is a quick way of decarbonizing the long-haul aviation by ch- changing the fuel that they run in, that, that, that they run on. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So the technology that, that uh, you're looking to have this, this startup really get involved in is the conversion from air to jet fuel. So can you, can you sort of explain what that is and how does that actually sure. work? So... Um, Thankfully, there's people who understand this much better than I, and, and including the two German scientists who developed this technology, this chemistry. I think it was in 1925. And what Germany in that period, time period, you know, I think we're all thinking a lot about um, these sort of, you know, political groups. They, they were trying to figure out how did they go, you know, Germany had lots of coal, right? But they needed, in order to, in order to move their tanks around Europe, they needed to um, use liquid fuels. And so... Um, these two guys, Fischer and Tropsch, they um, they developed a chemistry by which you can go from a, a a solid carbon source like coal into a liquid petroleum uh, petroleum product, mm-hmm. a liquid hydrocarbon. And we're basically using the same approach, except that we're we're not using coal, which you know obviously we don't want to use. Um, we're using the carbon dioxide, which 
unfortunately, is very abundant in our atmosphere. You know, there's a ton of waste. Actually, there's millions of tons of waste CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so we're using some newer technology. You know, direct air capture is this new thing um, that pulls the CO2 out of the skies using mechanical and chemistry, you know, processes to um, so that you have actual, you know, carbon dioxide. And then combining that with green hydrogen from electrolysis, you, know, you take water, you split it with electric current, you get the hydrogen plus the carbon dioxide. You actually reduce the carbon dioxide from carbon dioxide to carbon monoxide mm -hmm. using reverse water gas shift. So you get CO plus H2, and that goes into a Fischer-Tropsch reactor. And the, the end result of that is a, is a liquid fuel, which can be upgraded to jet fuel. And and so the whole <clears throat> principle is that uh, you're still producing jet fuel. The fuel will still introduce, you know, CO two into the atmosphere. But you're actually right. reducing the amount of CO two because you've used CO two from the atmosphere to create the jet fuel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we're, we're really careful. You know, we don't want to oversell it. This is carbon neutral. It is not carbon negative. Right. Right. We're pulling. We're we're essentially recycling CO two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what is the um, what is the do you have a sense of the efficiency of you know the the um the capture process that you capture you know x amount of of co2 and then converted it to converting it to jet fuel and you know it then consequently as a as a result of a few uh, a flight will will emit you know some some co2 what's the what's the ratio are we one to one or that's one to one. The, the key thing, though, is that it takes a lot of energy to do this conversion at mm -hmm, all. Mm -hmm. You know, and, um, something like ninety-five percent of our energy budget is for is to make hydrogen from the from from water, right? H two and O, and the rest of it is is for director capture and for the Fisher Tropsch piece. Um, and so, it's really important that we develop green energy sources that we can then use to do this whole jet fuel program. So what we're envisioning for our initial plant is actually to build our own solar farm. And and so, <clears throat> uh, at this at this point in time, Ikaika, what what stage is the the company? And the company is called Feather Fuels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, right now we are um, in an engineering and design and uh, environmental review point in, in in the process. You know. And, and we, we're trying to be really clear. You know, we're not a technology innovator. There's there's wonderful companies that we are developing relationships with that are doing the you know the Fisher Tropsch reactors. They're building director capture modules. They're developing the electrolysis um, you know modules as well. And we would basically buy those units from them. Um, our job here in Hawaii is to figure out the way to do this in a way that's really good for the community. You know, where is the right place to put it? Um, Where's the right place to put the solar farm? You know, who needs to be consulted? You know, how do we do it in a way that is, you know, that is pono and, and appropriate for for our community? So kind of a, we're a project developer here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the thoughts behind the uh, actual implementation of this. I know it's, an, it's an, at an early stage, so you're doing the engineering and design work now. But uh, uh, what are some of the thoughts behind you know, how would you go about implementing this? So we'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Ikaika Hussey, and we're talking about converting CO2 from the air into jet fuel and the uh, startup called Feather Fuels. This is Bite Marks Cafe. 
Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Naumea Hawaii and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe on HPR One. I'm Bert Lum. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Ikaika Hussey, and he is here uh, to talk about feather fuels and the decarbonization of long-haul aviation. And right before the break, we were talking about feather fuels and the stage uh, that it's in, and it's it's in an early stage. And and Ikaika, what what are some of the considerations that uh, go into identifying where this uh, operation would actually take place. And, and you've described the fact that, you know, 90% of the uh, energy used to convert is, is going to be uh, uh, renewable, but uh, then that means it's going to be either done by wind or solar or, or so, some other renewable source. Uh, so what are some of the considerations in identifying where this operation would take place? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I have a very long spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, I bet. To kind of, yeah, to kind of sum it up, it's things like um, what sorts of zoning mm-hmm. is appropriate, what kinds of land are, are best for this sort of purpose, as opposed to other land uses like agriculture, are the ways of combining, for instance, a solar farm with food production. Um, where is a community that would be uh, for whom this would be beneficial as opposed to a detriment? Um, where can we do this in such a way that um, that we can create jobs and uh, you know there's there's certainly cost and um, cost and price sort of considerations. Um, there's logistics about moving these molecules. You know, at the end of the day, we're making a physical molecule. So how do we move those molecules around? Mm-hmm. Um, there's legal issues around you know the transmission of electricity. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's there's really a, a long list. And and the other thing too that I, I forgot to mention is you know we're our initial plan is for carbon neutrality but we're seeing this as you know I, I know this might sound hyperbolic but we're seeing this as a century long project that for the first several decades you know let's say it's the next thirty years that airlines continue using hydrocarbons mm-hmm, you know what we mm-hmm. think of as jet fuel mm-hmm. we're happy to make that jet fuel but we know that the really long term play is is actually pulling CO2 out of the sky uh, permanently and figuring out how do we keep it out of the sky, not just recycling it into something else, but taking it out and actually beginning the process of reversing climate change. That's what we need to do. And so our commitment is, is, to, is to find a location and, um, you know, and, and a model for this where, you know, for 30 years we can make fuel, but going forward, you know, for another 50 or 70 years, we can just continue sucking CO2 from the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really fascinating process, which I personally am really jazzed about. Um, they, they do work in Iceland called CarbFix, where, where you know, Iceland has very similar, um, what do you call, you know, rock formations to Hawaii. It's a lot like Hawaii. In fact, when I was there, you know, I looked around at one point, I thought, man, I feel like I'm in Kona, which is where my family's from, <laughs> wow. my grandmother's side. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's just much colder. Yeah, yeah. It's like Kona. Um, but they, like, like we, have basalt rock formations. And what they found is that there's a natural process in which when CO2 is combined with water and injected into the rock, it, it fills into the, the little gaps, the little pukas in the basalt rock, and it, and it, um, it hardens and it kind of crystallizes. And 
it's basically a way of doing um, uh, of doing a permanent geological sequestration of CO2. And in fact, um, you know, it, it's a kind of biomimicry because it's actually a natural process. It's just being accelerated through through the use of of you know relatively simple technology. You know, of of injecting that into the ground and I'd like to see how do we get that done here in Hawaii. I think that's an you know it's something that we can actually offer the whole world is to be part of this the the global solution, um, not just for jet fuel, but about actually reducing and um, kind of repairing our climate. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's actually pretty fascinating, and I'm glad you brought up the idea of uh, carbon sequestration because. Again, that's the that's the goal, right? To, to figure out ways to remove the the carbon dioxide uh, yeah, from the it. atmosphere. Now, now, yeah. Ikaika, <clears throat> as you start to look at where this might take place, are you are you looking at Oahu? Are you looking at neighbor island? I mean, what what's the? I'm sure you're probably evaluating a number of of different sites. What's top of you the know, list? Bert, I would actually love to see a way for us to do it where it's like a fleet of small plants throughout the islands mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that every island can make its own fuel and is not dependent on, you know, barging these fuels between the islands and, you know, certainly zeroing out completely the something like $2 billion that we spend importing uh, fuel, including jet fuel from, you know, countries that we probably shouldn't be doing business with. You mm-hmm. know, par, to their credit, just cut off the, the supplies from Russia. That's mm-hmm. really That's really important. But... There's, I think if we were to take this on kind of, uh, you know, wholeheartedly, we can actually cut our, our imports completely. And so it's about increasing our circularity and doing it not just for the whole state, but on an island-by-island basis. And so, Ikaika, in terms of, uh, you know, the engineering and design, are you at a, a fundraising stage right now to get that done? And, and what's it uh, going to lead to in terms of trying to get the first plant up and running? So we've identified a major engineering partner for our our project. Um, it's called Black and Beach. It's a really well-known engineering firm. We're working with um, a legal team called Norton Rose to do our project finance. Um, let me see. And and you know what we're doing on the on the short term is we have really awesome team that's that's helping us think through the process. You know all of the different possible sites. You know we're talking to community leaders and and elected officials. Um, and you know that's the part that I really love because that's 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 my thing is is community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what what would be best for our community? Um, so that's where we are right now is just beginning the process. We just launched a crowdfunding raise on Start Engine um, for those initial development costs. You know, yeah. So that's that's where we are right now. We're really early and we're at the at the point now where we can start you know um, engaging the public more formally. And Kaika, you know, we only got a, about a minute left. So, uh, how are you going to do this if you get into city council? Well, you know, d- very different timescales, right? City council job is a four-year job, maybe eight-year job, but this is uh, something that needs to take place over decades mm-hmm. and generations. Um, Where I'm actively in the process of right now of, of recruiting um, a really key hire, someone who actually, you know, has more experience than me to, to play the job of. <laughs> Of, of leading the, the, the whole project. So oh, very good. I'm very working on right now. Sounds good. And so, Ikaika, if uh, somebody wanted to find out more about Feather Fuels, uh, where can they go check it out? So we, uh, our website is featherfuels.com, and it's spelled exactly how it sounds.
Very good. I'll put that up on our show notes. Of course, Ikaika Hussey is a candidate for Honolulu City Council District, District 6, and he is the current uh, lead of Feather Fuels. And I want to thank him for joining us today. And of course, thank you for listening to Bike Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll hear about the Pacific Asian Center for Entrepreneurship. And if you have any, um, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at bitemarks at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at bitemarks. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch us on HBR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HBR app, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Of course, you stay safe and uh, stay awesome. <laughs> and of course, we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.